and welcome to the premiere episode of October Surprise, a podcast created for citizens by citizens in Pennsylvania's new 16th Congressional District. I'm Jim Roddy, a lifelong resident of Northwest Pennsylvania, and your host for today's podcast. A little bit of background on our podcast first. October Surprise features a series of interviews designed to educate listeners in Erie, Crawford, Mercer, Lawrence, and Butler counties on key issues that face both our district and our two congressional candidates, incumbent Mike Kelly and challenger Ron DiNicola. On each podcast, we'll also discuss ethical leadership, which unfortunately is in rare supply in Washington, D.C. in 2018. We'll do a lot of talking today and throughout the month of October on this podcast, but our ultimate goal is action. For democracy to work, you have to participate. We cannot be bystanders. So at a minimum, that means being an informed voter. You can help by sharing episodes of October Surprise with your family and at least one or two friends, you know, the on-the-fence voters who live in our district. The ultimate action is to vote on Election Day. Let's surprise the special interest groups, the political action committees, and the big money when we take back our district on Tuesday, November 6th, and once again, put people first. Finally, I'm not a political veteran or a campaign strategist. I don't have all the answers, and I guess, quite frankly, neither do they. But together, we're going to learn what's happening in our district by talking with elected officials, grassroots leaders, and extraordinary citizens from PA-16 in each episode. Our special guest today is Chris Rieger. His name might sound familiar because he ran for the Democratic nomination for Congress earlier this year. Chris is a lifelong Pennsylvanian, born in Altoona, who now resides in Butler County. He's a full-time private practice attorney and an active volunteer for the Money in Your Pocket Coalition, a program that provides free tax assistance to elderly and low-income working families in western Pennsylvania. Chris, thanks for your time today, and welcome to October Surprise. Thanks very much, Jim. I uh, appreciate you having me. Yeah, glad we could connect. So uh, I know a lot of folks want to dive into the issues, but before we do that, let's talk about leadership. And it's kind of making me nuts that ethical leadership and moral leadership really seems to be ignored today when I think they should be the foundation for elected officials. You know, it seems today like there's less courage among our elected leaders to speak up when something's clearly wrong or untrue, and oftentimes we the people don't hold them accountable and penalize them for saying something that's obviously untrue. I want to get your perspective. Are you seeing a crisis today in ethical leadership, in high-character leadership among our elected officials? Well, I would say quite unfortunately that's that's the case. Um, now, that's something that I don't really think has started with, for instance, the current administration that's, uh, that's occupying the Oval Office right now. Um, it's something that has gone on for quite some time. I, I do think it's reflective of how uh, polarized we are as a nation. And I think the problem is, is that um, many individuals who run for public office, and, um, you know, this is me still being uh, my young idealistic self, I think the overwhelming majority of individuals who run for public office do so when they first start out. Um, They do it with the utmost best intentions. But the problem is the few that are fortunate enough to win election, I think what happens now is they stay in campaign mode. Um, you know, they basically try to govern the way that they campaign, which anymore is you, you don't appeal to a chunk of voters um, who may or may not be with you on any given issue, but you, you have to persuade. It's basically just getting out your base. And that is a reflection of, number one, I think, our gerrymandered districts. 
um, because oftentimes the general elections don't matter uh, in a lot in a lot of these gerrymandered districts. So you know, people in western and northwestern Pennsylvania know that very well. Um, and then I think it's it's also a symptom of uh, basically individuals gravitating to reinforced narratives. Uh, people people get repelled by what they don't agree with. So I think what happens is individuals uh, they you know isolate themselves in these silos, basically uh, these sound chambers uh, that reinforce their opinions that they already have. And I think that trickles the whole way up to people in office. So as I said, it didn't start with uh, you know the era of Trump or anything. Um, I think it would be unfair to. Um, you know, lay 100% of the blame at Republicans in office today um, and Donald Trump. But I think it's um, it, it's kind of exacerbated now uh, with the rhetoric we're seeing. Um, and I think that that's what that's what's a big uh, cause of this now. <clears throat> yeah, good point. And you know, historically, you know, I'm not naive or not naive that uh, politicians have told lies for a long time. But oftentimes it was. You do something, you know, you think about uh, Gary Hart when he had to, you know, pull himself out of the uh, Democratic nomination, you know, back in the 80s for what he did. And then you think nowadays people are like, oh, well, you know, what are you going to do? You know, move on, move on from that. So it seems like there's there's less shame. It also seems like it's brazen. Like you mentioned about the gerrymandering. You know, I'm I'm in Erie, Pennsylvania. Who could have thought it was a logical, rational thing to just cut Erie in half when you gerrymander the district? It's clearly unfair, but people thought, well, I'm just going to be able to, to get away with it. And so um, yeah, the gerrymandering is just, just an example of that. I'm, I'm glad to see the, uh, the district change, though. I'm sure you are as well. Oh, absolutely. When, uh, the, uh, w- when I was still running during the primary, um, I think it was a Monday afternoon, I was actually in town on my way to a hearing, and I got the news that the Pennsylvania Supreme Court had struck down the prior map. And I remember texting my wife slash campaign manager how, how excited we were that, uh, that we were going to be getting new maps. Now, at the time, we didn't know what those maps were going to look like. Um, but I did know, I think a few days later, that they had retained, um, I believe his, his name is Nathaniel Cohen, uh, mm-hmm. but I'm not, I'm not entirely sure who was going to redraw the maps. And he, he is someone, the Stanford professor, he was someone who was lauded by both Republicans and Democrats for his work in other states. And then, of course, when the maps finally came out, not just the 16th district, but the maps across the entire Commonwealth, um, the districts, for the most part, were very uh, much more representative of the regions that they encompassed. Uh, the old third, our old third district, for instance, you know, as you just said, Erie County was chopped in half, thereby diluting the Erie County vote, uh, which uh, basically rendered the, the vote up in northwestern Pennsylvania useless. And so you had communities like uh, Albion in the same uh, congressional district as, you know, just south of Clarion. Which, which made little to no sense. But now the I-79 corridor is basically re- reunified, and I think that's, that's critical. But we were seeing that across the state. Uh, the old uh, Keith Rothfuss's old district, PA-12, um, you know, looked like, I think the running joke was it looked like a, a salamander holding a hammer or mm-hmm, something. Mm-hmm. You know, it was mostly Beaver County, but then it wiggled through the northern Pittsburgh suburbs and the whole way over to Johnstown, uh, you know, almost where, where I was from. 
Um, and it, it just didn't make a whole lot of sense how a lot of these districts were constructed, except for the fact that you wanted to create these super safe districts, um, and that's how you, you got the old 13 Republican to 5 Democrat breakdown statewide. Right, d despite the Democrats getting 83,000 more votes uh, statewide. And it seems like what people want is to be fair, uh, and that's all that they're looking for is, is fairness. They also want, I think, a quality leadership. They want leaders to speak up when appropriate. And I guess tying into our day and age in 2018 in our district, you know, we've seen the president act like a bully and a bigot. Um, you know, a few months ago he supported a credibly accused child molester for Senate, you know, in Alabama. He creates and spreads misinformation, blatant stuff, several times a week. And that's just the tip of the iceberg. Yet Mike Kelly, who's the incumbent, um, you know, never says anything about that. He's consistently just a cheerleader for the administration and never holding them accountable. Do you think he has a responsibility to speak up when this happens? Again, at least occasionally. I mean, I understand. I'm not naive. I understand they're part of the same party. But doesn't he have to speak up when these things happen? Well, of course, I think, and it's not just Mr. Kelly, I think it's anyone in office, uh, but I think, again, this is reflective of this hyper-partisanship we're seeing, and I think it's hyper-tribalism as well, the, the, ten, the tendency to, um, you know, just, just to kind of stick with your side of the team no matter what um, is said or done. Uh, but, it, but it's critical for individuals like Mike Kelly, who have been in office for a while, to speak up on a lot of these issues because I, I think what the, the problem is is a lot of our democratic norms are under attack, um, oftentimes quite literally, um, from the current administration. And the fact that Donald Trump campaigned the way he did, I think the problem is is that Americans or ha have been kind of desensitized for lack of a better word, um, we've we've become kind of we've become kind of used to this sort of behavior, and I think Americans have to to remember that this sort of thing is not normal. Um, you know, the criticism of our independent judiciary, um, the refusal to um, stand up to somebody like Vladimir Putin uh, when the whole world is watching, when he himself said that he wanted Trump to win the election, and every single one of our intelligence agencies indicated that Russia did, in fact, meddle in our elections. Um, you know, it, it is critical, especially when you have unified government where Republicans control every branch down in Washington. Um, you do need individuals with, with leadership um, that are able to speak up about this. And the reason why that's important is, and why I don't understand why individuals like Mike Kelly won't stand up uh, more for our democracy is that Donald Trump's days are numbered. He's not going to be in the Oval Office forever, and the overwhelming majority of these lawmakers in Washington are going to be there presumably long after he's gone. Um, so I, I'm not entirely sure what they have to gain, uh, but again, if, uh, I suppose that this goes back to individual st sticking in campaign mode um, because, you know, recent polls indicate that Donald Trump is still uh, more popular in our district in PA-16 than even Mike Kelly is. So Mike Kelly politically in an election year probably only has something to lose if he came out and, and, and criticized the president. So um, it, it's quite unfortunate uh, because if, if you have a Congress that is not going to act as a check on the executive, if you have a Congress that's going to be complacent in all of this, 
then what do we have left? We just have right. we just have a judiciary, but now the courts are getting packed with, um, you know, like-minded folks as well, uh, and that's it's going to cause a huge problem. Right, and like you said, putting the team first ahead of principles is a problem. We see that in sports where there's an athlete who commits a serious transgression, and if it's a team that you're rooting for, oftentimes the fans will excuse his behavior. I remember uh, Barry Bonds when he was playing for uh, San Francisco, you know, clearly there were uh, steroids involved with what he was doing. Every other park he went to, he got booed. At San Francisco, they'd give him a standing ovation, and that's essentially, you know, people now, they hear a comment, and they say first, wait, is that person a Republican or a Democrat? Like, just make up your mind based on the principle rather than, than the team that you're on. Um, speaking of the team, I want to talk about uh, your team so and, and about your own leadership. So right after Ron DiNicola won the Democratic primary in the spring of this year, even though you were his opponent in the primary, you immediately and very enthusiastically supported him in his campaign. I, it just really struck me from a distance, um, you know, how much humility that showed to quickly do that. Can you talk about the importance of humility to be an effective leader and, I guess, you know, your own journey to, to be able to do that uh, and support him? Well, sure. Um, I mean, right after the primary was over, um, I, you know, there was no question that I was going to support Ron, but I think, uh, for largely for two reasons. Number one was was Ron himself. Um, he made a point and when I was running during the primary. I made it a point over and over again that it was going to take a cohesive five county effort uh, to defeat Mike Kelly this November, and I meant that, and I still do. And what struck me is that Ron, short, about a week after the primary, uh, he reached out to me. Um, he came down to Mercer County, um, and he met with a number of local grassroots organizers, local labor leaders, local elected officials, uh, local activists in Butler, Mercer, and Lawrence counties. And I really applauded him for that because he – uh, I, I would say nearly everyone in the room, uh, we met at a restaurant in Grove City, nearly everyone in the room uh, supported me for the primary. Uh, but nonetheless, he came down, he met with everyone, reaffirmed his commitment to the region. Um, so that struck me. So that was one reason why I got behind Ron and why I'm still behind him and why you know I'm, trying, I'm doing the best I can to coordinate for instance, canvassing efforts down here in Butler and Lawrence and, and Mercer counties in the southern end of the district. Um, but also, if it was Ron or if it was somebody else, um, and this goes back to the humility thing, you, you do have to be humble to do this because we're all on this, and I hate to reflect the whole tribal aspect, but we all, we all are on the same team, and the cause is the same, and that is to take back our democracy, take back, and more specifically, the House, and perhaps both houses of Congress this year, and I, I, I didn't want to fall in the same trap that our side, Democrats, fell into in 2016. Um, you know, because the, there there has been this tendency with many factions within the, within the party. Just oftentimes we fail to rally around a nominee because a nominee does not perfectly and rigidly fit into our own ideological uh, puzzle. And the only, you know, I, I, I heard John Fetterman speak at a, at a seminar uh, shortly after I announced last year. And, uh, you know, he said the only perfect candidate uh, in your own mind is going to be you. Right. <laughs> right. Uh, so at some point, 
uh, you have to put those, uh, you know, th that skepticism aside and just rally behind someone who you feel, for the, for the most part, shares your values. And certainly Ron DiNicola um, fits that mold. And, uh, you know, and th this goes back to humility. This whole, this whole campaign, my campaign and a lot of campaigns similar to mine nationwide, uh, are bigger than any one candidate, certainly bigger than me. Um, and if I didn't, if, if, if I wasn't uh, humble in all this, if I didn't, you know, if say that, hey, we have, we have a common goal that we all have to strive towards, then we were just going to fall in the same trap of 2016 and we weren't going to get anywhere and we weren't going to flip Congress and uh, we were just going to be stuck in this rut uh, that, that we find ourselves in now. Um, so I think that was largely those two reasons. Ron himself obviously mm -hmm. had, had a lot to do with it. Um, I think he's a great candidate and a great person. Um, but just the, uh, the, the times demand humility, the times demand uh, unity. Um, and I, I think that's why uh, humility is so important. Right, and like you said, the tribal thing, people like drawing lines even inside of one community. Like I went to Gannon University and always kind of struck me how fraternities and sororities would like draw all these lines and you're thinking, let's be honest, we're all, you know, essentially uh, middle class, upper middle class kids from western Pennsylvania. Why are we dividing off like we're so different? And people tend to do that, so you've got to have humility to, to look what the other, other person is doing. You, and Chris, you brought up about the values and the principles and the issues. Let's talk about the issues of this campaign. And I want to start off just in more general, because you're in Butler, I'm in Erie, you know, it's about 100 miles away, but it can seem at times worlds apart about what's going on. What are you seeing in Butler and the surrounding area? What are the biggest challenges that are also important to this campaign? Well, Butler in particular, I, I think it has a little bit more in common with Erie than, than many people think, but Butler is kind of a tale of two counties. Um, if you just look within our borders. Um, we're down way down in the southwest corner of Butler County in Cranberry Township, and it's one of the fastest growing areas in the entire Commonwealth. It's seeing an enormous amount of growth, and over the last 10 years, it's gone from uh, very, very rural farmland, agrarian, to massive suburbia almost overnight. Um, you know, many of the, and I think that's reflective of the changing demographics that we're seeing nationwide. Uh, a lot of these suburbs that are filled with many, many, many more uh, younger professionals, you know, people my age, uh, doctors, lawyers, college professors, um, and they're reflecting this demographic shift. So there's an enormous amount of economic growth right down in our region of the county. But the problem is, and I think this is reflective of the district and many communities across the country, is that what I want to see is I want to see this kind of economic opportunity and I want to see this kind of economic investment from many companies in other areas, not just areas like ours. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you hear oftentimes that Butler County, the population of Butler County keeps increasing, which is true. But where is the population increasing? Uh, people are moving down around us in Cranberry. They're moving to Sevenfields, Adams, uh, Mars, and Middlesex Township. Uh, they're not necessarily moving to the city of Butler or Zelianople or Portersville or even Slippery Rock University, in and around Slippery Rock University. Um, so I want to see that kind of 
economic investment elsewhere in the surrounding communities, not just tucked away in these uh, little pockets of, uh, you know, massive metro areas. Um, I, I think the economic power in America is concentrated in urban areas, um, but I'd like to see more investment elsewhere in infrastructure and renewable energy and that, uh, you know, these sorts of emerging industries um, to uh, give people in areas like the I-79 corridor a fair shake. When, when, when candidate Trump um, was campaigning in 2016, um, you know, he was making this point about how there are pockets of America that have uh, that have largely become uh, ignored and kind of left out of this emerging these new emerging economies, and he wasn't entirely wrong about that. Now, I don't believe he's remotely sincere about doing anything about it, um, but that point, that reality, is still a reality, and I want to see change, positive change, affect us all, not just. Um, in tiny little corners uh, of America. And it's, that's a great point to bring up. And as I mentioned in my introduction, I'm not a political veteran or a campaign strategist. Uh, and so how does that happen? How, what can happen to get that economic opportunity to build that infrastructure? Like, how does that tie into our election? Well, it ties in because I think you need, I think local communities, um, local legislators, county commissioners and the like need a partner in Washington uh, that can acknowledge that reality and that can bring the necessary funding and commitment from Washington to make it happen. Um, and I don't think areas like the 16th District have that. I think you need someone um, who's receptive, um, someone who reflects the district and, 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 uh, and their needs. Um, I don't think Mike Kelly reflects it. Um, you know, I think he, he's, he's talked at length about um, infrastructure in areas like Erie and up and down the I-79 corridor, but he hasn't really delivered. Um, and I haven't heard a peep from him over the years about investing in things like renewable energy. Um, you know, when I was campaigning during the primary, I, I said over and over again that uh, there are jobs to be had in areas like ours and things like solar and wind. You, you know, you notice you don't see a whole lot of... Uh, wind turbines down on Grand Street in downtown Pittsburgh. Mm -hmm. um, so I think there are a lot of vast untapped areas and untapped resources in areas like ours um, where that can happen. But you need a partner in Washington that's going to advocate for that. And I don't, think, I don't think the 16th District has it now. Got it. Thank you for tying that in. I, I appreciate that. There's also, you're talking about economic opportunity and the growth. If we can talk about um, I, I, poverty as well, so folks who are on the, uh, the lower end. So I found this quote when I was researching before we got together, uh, a quote from your campaign, and I'm hoping you can expand upon it. You said, if you're working full-time, you should not be in poverty. So why do you believe that? Uh, and a lot of people don't, quite frankly. There's a lot of folks who are fighting the minimum wage in general as a principle and, and raising the minimum wage. So why do you believe that if you're working full-time, you shouldn't be in poverty? Well, I think it's uh, largely reflective of the kind of work I've been doing um, outside of my law practice um, and also the kind of work that I do because I'm a consumer protection advocate. But as you mentioned earlier, I work with a, an organization called Just Harvest, which runs a program uh, called the Money in Your Pocket Coalition, which works in conjunction with the United Way of southwestern Pennsylvania. And how the program works is volunteers like myself are uh, certified by the Internal Revenue Service 
to provide free tax prep. Um, many uh, millions of working Americans, um, they'll waste several hundred dollars a year uh, at places like H&R Block to get their taxes done when they otherwise would qualify for free tax prep at programs like ours. And oftentimes, <clears throat> they're trying to apply for things like the Earned Income Tax Credit, which is the largest anti-poverty program in America. Okay, it's not welfare, it's the Earned Income Tax Credit. And things like that, and the Child Tax Credit, uh, the American Opportunity Credit, which deals with um, expenses for second, post-secondary education, for instance, um, all of these tax credits have one thing in common. They're earned credits, meaning you have to work to earn them. And, you know, the people that are getting their taxes done that apply for these programs that are getting, say, five or $6,000 back, um, these aren't individuals who are looking for a, a handout. Um, these are individuals who are working two, sometimes three jobs at minimum wage, um, maybe a couple of kids in the house, and, you know, they might be getting five or $6,000 back in, in, in federal tax credits, but it's to supplement a $25,000 a year salary um, to feed a family of three or four, um, which is completely inadequate. So to, to circle back to your question, um, I believe that because I think it's largely a moral imperative. Um, if you're working full-time, and you still can't support yourself or support your family, well, then I, in my judgment, that goes against who we are, as, who we should be as, as a society. Um, I, I don't think you can have it both ways. I don't think you can say uh, that, uh, you know, people shouldn't be entitled to a minimum wage, but then when people are working, uh, they still have to apply for welfare, um, which I'm, I'm seeing all the time. So um, I think if you provide a living wage for individuals, I think you – um, I, I think everyone benefits. Uh, you know, you, you would satisfy this moral obligation uh, that people are able to provide for themselves and provide for their families uh, without being a burden, uh, you know, to, to other taxpayers. Right, and just from a family standpoint, and thanks for breaking that down, um, you know, I, I think what happens is, so folks like you and me were uh, college-educated. Um, we haven't even thought really about minimum wage in our own lives since maybe – high school, and then you start saying, well, like, I don't understand how that makes such a big impact from a family standpoint, but if we want to do additional activities, we're able to go do it. But if you're working at $9 an hour and you're working 2,080 hours in a year, so that would be 40 hours a week for 52 weeks, that is no vacations whatsoever, that's 40 hours every week, $9 an hour, you're grossing $18,700. And so I'm guessing folks who are listening to this podcast right now, you couldn't do anywhere close to what you do right now at 18.7 from a gross standpoint. So what you end up doing is, like you said, picking up another job. And so even if you do work then 60 hours a week every single week, that's going to get you to $27,000 as a gross. And if you have kids working 60 hours a week every week, you just aren't able to spend time with them and develop them and, and build up from a healthy standpoint. So is that kind of what you're saying from a moral standpoint where, boy, if we have a, a higher wage, those folks not only would be able to put more money back into our economy, they'd be able to spend time with their family, which is like what's life all about, to be honest uh, with you. Oh, that's precisely right. And, you know, I think that, that kind of dispels this myth about how, well, minimum wage jobs, they're only for um, high school students anyway. Um, so we shouldn't have to worry about that. Well, 
Uh, well, first of all, uh, that's not true because I, I work with these people, um, you know, every tax season and in my own private practice. Uh, the people that are working to qualify for these various credits, um, they're not high school students. Um, they are their parents. Uh, many of them are, uh, are out of school. Most of them are out of school. Um, some are even elderly. Um, and, you know, they're, you know, they don't want to retire because they're worried about sustaining themselves. So, um, yeah, you, you make an outstanding point. Um, you know, even if you, if you bump it up to, to say $13 an hour, um, you're still grossing, uh, you know, under $30,000 a year. I mean, the state median income, um, for a household of one, in the state of Pennsylvania is around $54,000 a year. Now, should minimum wage be $54,000 a year? Probably not. But there should be some um, wage establishment where um, someone can maintain a minimal um, and respectable standard of living. Um, that is who I think we should be as a nation. I think we owe it to the American worker to do so. Uh, right, and just to add on to that, you know, I've heard folks say, well, go get training, go learn a trade. So I guess a few points on that. One is that would be great if you could, but how do you pay for it? And if you're only, again, grossing, you know, $20,000 a year, how do you pay for it? And if you're working all the time, how do you find time to do that? And then, you know, if I hear people say, go become a plumber, well, we only need so many plumbers. And if there's 60 million, you know, minimum wage workers in the United States, you don't have room, you know, the economy doesn't have room for that many plumbers or that whatever. We're always going to have folks working in the restaurant industry in some of these lower skill minimum wage jobs. And what are we going to do about it? Like, there seems to be a reality that we have to face. And so I guess what, what would you think? What would be a solution uh, to that? What would help take some steps in the right direction that you would like, um, you know, our next congressman, congressman to do? Um, well, I, th I think there needs to be an advocate for, uh, for instance, I advocated, for instance, for the Raise the Wage Act, um, you know, which establishes a form of a living wage, um, which basically over time uh, ties it to um, increased costs, you know, basically inflation. Um, you know, for instance, I do bankruptcy law, and I think how you can do it is there are various standards set by the Internal Revenue Service. Um, bankruptcy is often means-tested. Um, you know, your income determines your ability to pay your debts, and there are standards set by the IRS um, that that increase periodically with inflation. So I think you can do it that way, number one. Um, but I think that's also reflective of um, income inequality that we're seeing nationwide and how organized labor, for instance, um, has uh, their clout and their power over the last 35 to 40 years has really taken a massive hit in various, um, various ways. And we see a correlation between that and, uh, you know, increasing income inequality, uh, lack of, you know, lack of upward social mobility, um, and relatively stagnant wage, wages. And what you get is an entirely generation now, uh, namely millennials, mm -hmm. um, who are burdened with stagnant wage growth, the inability, for, for instance, to purchase a house, um, and massive amounts of student loan debt, which cut into consumer power. Um, so I think a new Congress has to deal with a number of different issues, uh, subsidizing higher education 
is part of it, uh, getting people involved in the trades, uh, because, again, uh, you know, there are jobs to be had in a lot of these new industries, and you need tradesmen to do it. Um, the college is great, but it's not for everyone. Um, right. And I think there needs to be an investment in a lot of these uh, new apprenticeship programs um, to find spots for people. So I think that's what you do. You invest in the American worker, and I don't think this, this Congress is doing that. Uh, and Chris, I know you've got to run, uh, and we're talking about work. You and I both have to get back to our, our day jobs that actually pay the bills. But one more subject I wanted to bring up to you, because this is kind of about the one-two punch with wages and then health care. And so a lot of people are in financial distress because of health care bills. Personally, I am a 16-year cancer survivor, and I am so grateful that I had health care back then that I was able to go get the care that I needed and, and get it paid for for the most part. What's your take on everyone being able to afford uh, to be able to take care of themselves, especially in emergency situations? Do you put this in the same moral bucket that you do of you know being able to spend time with your family and have a living wage? Well, precisely. Well, I put it in, in, in two categories. One's a moral imperative. The other is an economic imperative. Um, you know, the issue of health care is, is big with me, as you might know, because, again, I do bankruptcy law, and the overwhelming majority of bankruptcies filed in the United States are filed because of unpaid medical bills. And we are the only nation in the world where that is a reality. Great Britain, Canada, uh, nations of Western Europe, the amount of bankruptcy filed because of medical bills totals zero. In the United States, they total over 600,000. Hmm. Um, so there is a moral imperative because I do believe that access to adequate health care is a fundamental human right. But there's an economic incentive as well because I think we hear a talking point where, well, we already spend more uh, for health care than every other nation in the world. And, yes, that is correct. And the, pr precisely the reason we do is because we have a system that is designed to not cover everyone. Where you have these high-risk pools and where, where people are, are not covered, then that is going to raise necessarily raise costs for everyone else um, because the private insurance companies still have a stake in the game. Um, and, you know, when you have administrative bloats pushing 20% in the private insurance industry, then you see where all that, those extra dollars come from. If, and I, I, in the primary, as many, many people know, I advocated the switch to single payer, uh, again, because of the moral imperative, but economically it makes sense, uh, because you're, you're saving at least $600 billion a year, um, you know, under a Medicare for All system. As I said, the administrative bloat uh, in the private insurance industry is around 20%. Medicare, it's about 3%, hmm. you know, for advertising costs and that sort of thing. So um, I, I think so many uh, financial decisions nationwide um, are made with health care as the number one concern. Right. And, it, you know, so, again, there's the moral imperative, but economically, there would be so much more individual um, choice and individual freedom um, if that was no longer a concern for millions of working Americans. Yeah, and I can say the last thing on health care is I still haven't met a person who doesn't deserve health care, and no one suggested to me, oh, this person, they shouldn't get health care. Like, we're all humans. I'm a human. You're a human no matter what. I mean, folks deserve to get health care. It shouldn't be just limited to a certain group of people, and other people have to 
suffer and, and is, you know, eventually die um, because of a lack of health care. Oh, absolutely. And I think it's incumbent upon us to, um, to communicate that point better. Um, I think it's not, you know, while, while it's a handout, it's an entitlement. No, it's, it's a basic right, and I think people need to also be made, made aware that everyone benefits if everyone is covered uh, in the short term and the long term. Exactly. Well, very good. Well, Chris Rieger, thank you very much for your time today and uh, for stepping up. I, I appreciate it very much. Thank you very much, Jim. Um, I, I, I greatly appreciate the opportunity and the invitation. And uh, just to reiterate that, um, you know, I think you mentioned earlier that, you know, I, I said this extensively throughout the primary, and I, I'll keep saying it, democracy is not just voting. Democracy is participation. So um, take your enthusiasm you have this year that you're going to have in the voting booth, but take it a step further right now. Knock on doors, make phone calls, and, and get active because, um, you know, it's, it's all about participation, and without participate, participating, um, you know, our democracy just doesn't work. So um, I thank you for doing this, and, uh, you know, I, I encourage everyone to be active between now and November. Great, and to add on to what Chris just said, our podcast is over today, but there's still much more work that we need to do. As we talked about at the start, we can't be bystanders. You have to participate, and you can help by sharing this episode with your family and at least one or two on-the-fence voters who live in our district, and then by voting on Election Day. Let's surprise those special interest groups, the political action committees, and the big money when we take back our district on Tuesday, November 6th, and once again, put people first. I'm Jim Roddy. Thanks so much for listening to October Surprise. 